0: You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, a podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 89. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Peter Riva. Peter has spent many months, over 30 years, traveling throughout Africa and Europe. Much of this time has been spent with the legendary guides for East African hunters and adventurers. He even created a TV series in 1995 called Wild Things for Paramount. Passing on the fables, true tales, and insider knowledge of these uh, last reserves of true wildlife is his passion. Uh, He's also been a literary agent for over 40 years, so he uh, knows the uh, business of publishing from both sides of the table. And we'll talk about that during the interview. His uh, latest book is uh, Kidnapped on Safari, which is going to be released uh, today, January 21st, if you're listening to this on the uh, day the podcast uh, airs. This book is the third book in the uh, Mbuno and Piro series, uh, which pulls uh, terror from headlines to create a gripping international thriller. We'll talk about uh, this great book. Um, I uh, I received an advance copy, enjoyed it uh, thoroughly. Uh, I really love these uh, international uh, thrillers. Uh, there, a, it's a lot of fun to read this. You can check it out at, uh, forward slash safari. And that is my affiliate link to Amazon. So it's a great way to support the podcast as well. And uh, here's my interview with, uh, Peter Riva. Hey everybody. This is Alan with meet the thriller author. And on Skype today, I have uh, Peter Riva and uh, Peter, welcome to the uh, podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Alan. I'm, it's, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Did I, uh, did I butcher your last name?
1: No, it's it's Italian. It's Riva, which is fine.
0: (laughs) Good. Uh, Can you tell our listeners uh, about yourself, please?
1: Well, I was born in 1950 in Manhattan. I grew up with uh, a famous mother who was a television actress and a grandmother who was a film actress. And um, when I was 12, I was shipped off to boarding school in Switzerland, um, a highly international school. I had roommates like uh, Flavian Kazavubu from the Congo and um, some of the Saudi princes and so on. And I got a good taste of internationalism, and um, I married my wife that I met on holiday when I was 13, and we're still married, 47 years. And I now live in Gila, New Mexico, one of God's most beautiful places. People sort of tease us and say, well, why Gila, New Mexico? And I say, because it's on the road to nowhere.
0: That's the best part, especially living in the crowded San Francisco. I was kind of jealous.
1: I, I have, um I have a backyard that connects to the Gila Wilderness, which is three and a half million acres.
0: Oh, wow, so it's, kind of, it's a little bit kind of like a your own little a, a safari kind of.
1: <laughs> it is. When I when we first came and visited here in 2000, um, it reminded me so much of the Ngong Hills in East Africa. The climate, the altitude's all about the same. Okay, there's no elephant or rhinoceros, but we have bear and mountain lion, and we've got uh, snakes and uh, javelinas, which are kind of like warthogs and so on. So, uh, if the prehistoric creatures were still here, we'd have um, the giant sloth, and we'd have um, the rhino, and we'd have the the mastodon, but all of those left when the Indians uh, finished them off about a thousand, two thousand years ago.
0: So for readers who aren't familiar with your books, can you tell us a little bit about them? They're so fascinating. I've, I've been enjoying reading uh, your latest. But we'll, we'll get into that one in a, in a sec. But can you give us a little background about your your, your work?
1: Sure. Um, back in the first time I went to Africa, I was 16 and 66 and um, kept going back. And in the early 80s, I met a, a man called Mbuno. He was of the Walingulu tribe. And he and I hit it off. We both feel that... Uh, men and women are part of nature, not apart from nature. And so I took a lot of his ethic walking with him in the Maasai Plains and uh, places like Mount Kenya and and near Kilimanjaro and in some of the reserves like Kimana. And Imbuno was a multi-generational descendant of the famous elephant hunters of East Africa. And a lot of people don't understand that Um, Elephant hunters were part of the solution, not part of the problem. First of all, they hunted with bow and arrow. Um, The only animal they could get near was the old matriarch or old patriarch of the herd. And like any rancher will tell you, that comes a point when the old male and female prevent the younger ones from breeding. And in fact, if you want to breed up the herd, um, you quite often um, kill the bull and put a new bull in place. Well, the Walingulu were doing this as part of nature, not apart from nature, but a part of nature. And they would um, ceremoniously um, kill um, the elephant that came out to challenge them, and the tribe would waste absolutely nothing. They weren't interested in the tusks, this was food, cloth, uh, material, leather, and so on. Nothing was wasted. In fact, the elephant herds used to stand around watching them consume and prepare the beast for um, per- preservation of some of the meat and stuff. And they were part of that um, tribal ethic of the time. Of, of course, Western man came and sort of um, destroyed things. The slave trade actually did more damage to the elephants in Africa um, in 19... 19- 12, there were less Africa African elephants left than there are now. Um, and Teddy Roosevelt, actually, our great president, he went over with a group of British hunters, and they systematically shot every um, old male and female elephant to cause the elephants to breed up, which is why they were saved. Because the slave trade and the ivory trade were linked together, you would get slaves, and then they would carry the ivory to the coast. And that was kind of the link there. Once the slave trade ended, people did an elephant count and were dismayed. So the of course, today poaching is a serious problem. the The ivory is two and a half thousand dollars a pound in mostly in China um and some places in Asia. um and elephants are being slaughtered in huge numbers, which is a tragedy. And Mbuno was always deadly against wasting. Um, and destroying elephant herds. He thought that was an abomination. And um, I took a lot of that ethic of his and put it in my book. And of course, I created a character, Parabaltazar, Baltazar, who's a uh, film and television producer, um, working in the bush and very familiar with working in the bush. And he and Mbuno um, are very much like blood brothers, and they work well together. Um, there's sort of a yin and yang relationship. Mbuno understands everything about nature, and Perro is totally familiar with the Western world. <clears throat> I took a lot of that experience of Perro from my own work as making documentaries in Africa and elsewhere.
0: So you spent a lot of time in the in Africa. Uh...
1: Yeah, over the years, kept going back every year or every two years. I haven't been back in about five years, which is just a matter of preference here in the family. But, you know, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful place, providing you're going for the real experience and not the zebra-painted minivans where everybody sits looking out through dirty glass at a lion who's been thrown a hunk of meat. You know, it's, the real Africa is still fantastic. You just, it's a little more difficult to get to it.
0: And so your books now. You the your, the latest book uh, in the series is kidnapped on safari, and you
1: have this is the third one in the series. Correct. Yes. The the first was murder on safari. Um, funnily enough, I always put people I really knew in my stories. Of course, th- they come to a sticky end. Uh, there was a wonderful hang glider, um, s- a large raptor expert, working with Princeton and Cornell, um, who unfortunately did die in a hang gliding accident. And I wrote him into the first story Um, in the second story. It mostly it's, it's called a package of Berlin. and and, um, what happens there is that Pero gets caught up in a a rather nasty, shady business put upon him by the state department and CIA. And he extricates himself only because he's able to call on Mbuno to come from Africa and help him assess the people that he's dealing with. Mbuno has a way of assessing people as animals and their behavior patterns as animals. And because of that, he's able to anticipate their actions and their needs. Um, So Perro relies on him in the second book to uh, unravel the mysteries. And in the third book, um, Mbuno's uh, son, his adopted son, Ube, has been, um, whilst on a photographic safari in Tanzania, has disappeared. And turns out he was kidnapped. And uh, Pero and Mbuno and uh, another fellow um, decide they're going to go down and liberate him. And in the process of liberating him, they find out that Mbuno's son, Ube, wasn't the only one kidnapped. I don't want to give the whole book away, but um, it's it sort of snowballs. M- most of my stories start off <clears throat> fairly benignly and then all hell breaks loose. And, and it keeps getting more and more sort of intricate and complicated, although I try and make it as easy to understand as possible. But I, I write in the stories real events, real news items that have sort of slipped by and people have not paid enough attention to and i enjoy putting those in as real signposts for imbuno and perro to solve
0: and i didn't even realize it was uh, based on actual events
1: yeah the, the thing is uh, i'm a information junkie i always have been since i was a kid and i always slept with the radio tuned to a news station and when i went overseas i got a shortwave radio and i used to listen to all the shortwave channels broadcasting in english and and or french and I still do that now, although most of that is fortunately because the internet is a lot more clear. You don't have to listen through the static. Um, And you hear news items from different countries around the world, which really strike you as fundamentally uh, important. Um, They don't make the American news cycle because they don't have a commercial reality. It's worth remembering, and please uh, understand that I'm not criticizing America in any way, as Ted Turner once said, one of his greatest regrets in his life was the day he allowed commercials on CNN. Because the second he had commercials on CNN, they were able to leverage the news they wanted first in order to make people buy more cornflakes.
0: And, Entertainment news. Huh?
1: Well, unfortunately, that that's the reality. And, and that's why you're not getting as much news as we used to. Uh, Walter Cronkite – Average 20 and 25 news items in his broadcast. Now we're down to six.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You take out the commercials, like the evening news is probably really only like 12 minutes or something, probably.
1: <laughs> yeah. I made, a, I made a special for ABC, a one-hour special for ABC back in 88 um, on Peter Beard in Africa. Um, and it was a primetime special, which was great. And um, we thought we were making a one-hour show and we were making a 48-minute show. Well, I talked to Bert Van Munster, my partner. He does the Amazing Race. He's now down to forty-two minutes an hour.
0: Oh wow! Oh yeah, the Amazing Race. That's a, that's a that was a great great show. Is that where you got, kind of got the reality? Because that's part of in your books too, the whole reality uh, television angle.
1: <laughs> well, uh, the reason Bert made that whole series, and I really urge your listeners to tune in and watch the Amazing Race. Yes, there's a lot of cutesy gimmicks and stuff like that. The CBS wants in it, but what Bert was always after was opening up a world view for the the viewers, so that people got to see how people lived in different places around the world that otherwise they have no chance of seeing.
0: Was it Anderson Cooper the first host for a little bit?
1: No, <laughs> and no, was <laughs> yeah, it's Anderson. Anderson tries to do an international thing, but he never can get backing for it. He keeps trying.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So Africa plays such a great, obviously, it's a big role in your books. Um, did you always, when, when you first visited there years ago, were you always envisioning like, oh, this would be a great, you know, setting for a, for a book? Or
1: no, I'm 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 an avid reader, and uh, I, um, I I can't think of a time when I haven't traveled with a book or books. Um, used to drive my wife nuts. We'd go on holiday for two weeks and I'd take ten books. Um, the 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 africa stars you get look i'm an old guy <laughs> born in 50 so what happens is you get to a certain age and you say hang on a second i'm going to take all this to the grave with me i don't think so so you you put it down as a fun story look i i don't have any illusions of how good a writer i am not um And, you know, compared to my mother who wrote the biography on my grandmother, um, I can assure you that's real writing. Mine isn't. I am a page turner. I try and tell a story and I keep it as fast paced and as interesting as possible. Um, The characters are real. Um, They are always true to themselves. I'm good about that, and I'm also good about not leaving the reader behind, but I have no illusions that my turn of phrase and construction and cadence is anywhere matching the great masters. Every time I read John le Carré, I just shudder a little bit inside that, good Lord, how does he do such a great story and write so well?
0: <laughs> wow.
1: I, I represented an author by the name of Stieg Larson, um, who wrote Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Oh, of
0: course.
1: and. And he, he um, <laughs> there's a funny story about that, actually. Um, he, he was a very famous investigative journalist in Sweden, um, and everybody knew him, and he really did blow the lid off of many great scandals. And one day coming down in the elevator of his apartment building, he bumped into an editor at Norstedt, who I represented, um, per, per Faustino, and he said to Per, You know, just in my spare time, I've written a novel. Would you mind reading it? Well, first of all, the idea that this guy had spare time was amusing, but he was a workaholic. And Per said, sure, I'll read it, you know, thinking, why not? Um, The next day, he was handed a plastic shopping bag with 1,600 pages close typewritten of one manuscript. And Per looked at this and said, You've got to be kidding. Nobody's ever going to publish a book this time. So So Pear took it to his office, and he read the first two pages. Then he read 10 pages. Then he read 100 pages. Then he read 500, and he just kept going. He said, oh, my God, this is a great book, but it's unpublishable. So he talked to um, Stieg, and he said, look, uh, I can't publish. There's no financial way I can publish this, but, you know, I could help you split it up. So they split it into three volumes. And that's the book that everybody got to know.
0: Oh, fascinating. I didn't realize that that was supposed to be one book. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah. But that that's kind of the workaholics thing, you know. I mean, between – I think i think Stieg probably drank a fifth of whiskey and and four packs of cigarettes a day. Um, and he just sort of typed like a fiend. I think he could type 120 words a minute. And he was just hammering away.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> So that's just a, I find that so fascinating with your background that you are a, a published author, but you worked as an agent for for a long time. How, so you get to see both sides of the uh, of the coin. How, what are the, what are your feelings on that now? See that from the author side.
1: Well, you know, to be honest with you, I still do the literary agent work because representing authors is a serious business, and you can't leave them hang. Um, Being an agent allows me to know what the publishing world is looking for. um, And that doesn't always match the abilities and the desires of the authors. And sometimes to help them get to a position of being published that they otherwise wouldn't have. So I've been very proud to be able to do that for 40 or 50 authors in my lifetime. I think that also, being a literary agent allows me to not fool myself into thinking, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. Look, I, I write because I want to write. There's a wonderful author who we represent. She lives nearby, Sharman Apt Russell. She, she's truly one of the world's great nature writers. She, she won the John Burroughs medal two years ago. And Sharman and says, I sit down and I'm writing for myself. If it never gets published, it doesn't matter. And in the same way, I have to say that writing for me is an exercise in hedonism for a relief of what I have in my head, putting it down on the page. It's a pure pleasure thing for me. And the day it becomes work or becomes something I don't enjoy, I won't do it. It's a hobby. Some guys have model trains. Some guys um, become explorers with a bicycle on, on mountain paths. That's not me. I... I like sitting down and writing, um, and I like reading. Those are my two real passions. Um, and as far as being a literary agent is concerned, it's sometimes trying to get a round peg into a square hole and vice versa. It, you, you have to work with the editors. I, I, I suppose I work with 300 or more editors in, in the publishing world, um, some more successfully than others, and you just keep trying for, for the author's sake.
0: So, what is your uh, writing process then? Do you um, do you outline and plot the the story before you sit <laughs> down? Or? I heard
1: I heard you ask several authors that, and I knew you were going to come to that. The answer is the answer is, um, I, an idea comes to me of based on where I've been or what I've done, and um, seemingly benign beginning to an adventure. I decide, um, other than Perro and. And, and Buno, I decide who's going to start the adventure. And then I just let the story take its course. And I keep throwing um, n- not so much obstacles but events in their way that then become um, stepping stones towards a larger and larger and greater story until it comes to a climax. Um, I like my heroes to survive, even though they come away quite often either um, – fatigued or damaged or um reluctant to engage in such activities ever again Um, but i keep throwing them in the deep water so that's good for them
0: and how about research do you do do you put in a lot of research beforehand
1: um i first of all i do a lot of uh research in my head uh, things that i've been seen done and i drag on that i also do a lot of um Careful um, research on the internet and in books that I have, um, just to make sure that I'm not saying something that's inaccurate. But m- mostly, it's taken from my own experiences, my own knowledge of the places and and people.
0: So you say you're a big you're a big reader. Uh, were you a fan of uh, of thrillers before you decided to uh, to write to write them?
1: Oh, I'm afraid I am a I'm an avid uh, thriller reader and. There's nothing I like more than um, curling up with a good thriller. I, uh, you know, I, look, I, I grew up with uh, authors like Gavin Lyall that today nobody knows, but as a teenager, you read Gavin Lyall, and his heroes are always the guy you want to be. Um, today, I, I like authors. John Le Carre, anything he writes, of course. Um, Joseph Cannon, I, I, I like Joseph Cannon because his he writes about locations that I've been to that are absolutely accurate. And particularly his Istanbul book was wonderful because I, it, what he wrote about are places that I've viscerally felt myself. And and when he's that accurate about location, he treats a location like a character. And I try and do the same things in my book. Now Lee Childs is interesting because I've read a couple of the Jack Reacher stories. I'm not a great fan of, um, relying on a superhero's ability to solve everything for me it takes more than one or two to solve problems but um, lee childs has a character in jack reacher that is very much like perro and and buno combined and i think that works well now there there are authors that you know Somebody asked me the other day, well, what are you reading? Actually, I'm reading a photocopy of an original manuscript of Hemingway's Into the Trees before it was edited. And it's actually a better book than the edited version. Um, I understand why they edited it the way they did, because um, they moved sections around. And, And I understand why, because... He was writing 20 years ahead of his time, and it's a very modern book. I, and I keep trying to talk the Hemingway family into republishing it the way he wrote it, kind of like the director's cut, only this is the author's cut. You know, um, it's, yeah. I enjoy James Church a lot, uh, his Inspector O series. I've never been to uh, Korea or North Korea. Um, but again, he treats, uh, in in his case, the country and the political infrastructure as characters in his thrillers, uh, his detective series. And I think they're really wonderful books. And of course, you know, you can't you can't overlook um, some of the great writers of all time like Graham Greene and people like that. I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you understand what Graham Greene did is he created a character within 10 pages and that character was always 100% true to himself. And it was the character... It was the traits of that character that defined and unfolded the plot of his books. Particularly, you know, if you read The Quiet American or The Third Man, there there is no way those stories could have finished any other way than they did because of the character development that he put into the stars. Really brilliant.
0: And what are you working on now? Are you continuing the, uh, the, the, the series?
1: <laughs> yeah, well... You know, um, you'll get to the end of the book you're reading at the moment, and I hope you enjoy it. And at the end, um, Pero and, and Buno are kind of tired. And, and uh, so uh, in the new book, which I'm working on now, they decide they're going to do – to reconnect with nature, they're going to do a small foot safari. And they're going to follow some elephants north of Lake Rudolph into Ethiopia. And it's a three-day walk with elephants, and it's all going well until it really doesn't. I won't tell you anymore. <laughs>
0: all right, well, we'll, have to, we'll, we'll have to wait for that one then. So, and so, kidnapped on safari. That's your latest book. It comes out on January 21st. Um, I'm about halfway through it. Highly recommend it to listeners. It's a lot of. It's a, it's a great. It's a lot of fun. It's a great thriller. Um, and then for listeners, the uh, best place for them to find you it would be your website probably, right? PeterRiva.com?
1: Yeah, that's fine. And and I'm also on Facebook, Peter Riva. And, um, you know, by all means, contact me, write to me, drop me a note, whatever you want. If you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. I'm on Goodreads as well, but it's a little hard to get messages from Goodreads. But by all means, you know, write to me and tell me what you think or would like to see or don't want to see. It's kind of interesting to have all the different perspective. I have a, a rhino skin when it comes to criticism, so don't worry about hammering me. That's okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably being in the literary world all these this year, is, uh, that probably really thickens the skin.
1: <laughs> it does. And you know what? The hardest thing for authors, and, and I, you know, Alan, I'm sure you've been through this. Rejection is personal. Anybody who tells you that an author takes rejection is not personal, is lying. Um, it it is personal because what you're writing is personal. And if somebody doesn't like it, that means essentially they don't like what you have to say. Now, they're not saying they don't like you, but they're saying they don't like what you have to say. And that's always going to be a little painful. So I'm always as delicate as I can be with my authors. I don't pass on negative comments to them. I do pass on creative comments because that, that might be useful. And indeed, many authors have benefited from that. Mary Glickman, one of our authors, she's a brilliant, brilliant author. Um, she's written some wonderful books um, that take place in the South um, with the Jewish and the Negro uh, situation in the 60s. And it's really wonderful. And um, she, her first book had no quotes around dialogue and I think 20 or 30 publishers turned her down um, because she didn't want to use punctuation in dialogue. And eventually she was published in 65,000 copies of that one book later. Um, she was proved right.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's like a uh, Conrad MacArthur does that too, that uh, punctuation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before I let you go, uh, for aspiring writers out there, especially since you have the uh, experience as a literary agent, any advice for aspiring writers?
1: Yeah. Um, You've got five pages. If you want to be published, if you just want to enjoy writing, enjoy writing. Um, the, The first rule of any person who wants to be a writer is to write. If you don't enjoy it, don't do it. Number one, it can be painful if you're struggling to get something right. I get that. But if you're not enjoying writing, don't write. Um, And if you are going to write something you want to be published, you have five pages to establish the who, what, where, when, and why. Um, American audiences will not tolerate 60 pages to understand what the book is about or what they're reading about. They have to understand the characters early and they have to understand why they're reading this and understand the voice of the author. There's nothing more important than the voice of the author. Because that voice plays in the reader's head and needs to be trustworthy. It needs to never lie. It needs to be absolutely consistent and honest. And there's a generosity in that, that um, readers really respect and help make authors better and better. You know, one of the problems I have with Dan Brown is that nobody constructs a thriller better than Dan Brown. That's, you know, what goes without saying. But Dan Brown really needs a good editor. He needs an editor who's going to say, no, Dan, don't do that with your voice. Leave it your voice. Don't take your voice away and go in a different direction. Now, who the hell am I to criticize Dan Brown? He's made millions of dollars and he's very successful. But, you know, as an agent, I would have guided him that way. There's a wonderful story about Martin Cruz Smith, who is – I don't know if you've ever read Martin Cruz Smith, Gorky Park, and that whole series. Yes, I love those. He's absolutely brilliant. But his first two books were edited by Bob Loomis at Random House. Bob Loomis was also Maya Angelou's editor. And there's never a finer editor in America, period, bar none. And Bob Loomis really helped sculpt the rough edges of Martin Cruz Smith's work and in subtle ways. And his agent, Martin's agent, um, decided he needed more money up front, and this and that, and moved it around like a. Uh, um, it's a business proposition for agents, usually not me, but for most of them, and it, they moved him from publishing house to publishing house. And I have to say that his work isn't as good as it was at the beginning, and that's unusual, because his stories are better, his character development's better. But he needs that editor to take the rough edges off of what he's doing, and it's not because he's not a great writer; he is. But he deserves an editor of the caliber of Bob Loomis, and there isn't one being devoted to him anymore, and that that bothers me as an as a professional in the trade.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, things are changing so so fast now too that uh, like the 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 way like yeah like having a dedicated editor like that that was part of the team is. Seems like the, a lot of that is changing now, as with the changes in publishing.
1: <laughs> well, it, it's terrible. Uh, the, the number of editors who have let go and the workload of the existing editors is crippling. Mm-hmm. I mean, people don't realize that. Um, well, I read two books, three books a week, um, and there's no way I can fit that in the business day. So you end up doing it, you know, early in the morning or late in the evening, and the workload is is as far as hours are concerned. I, I can't think of since I was 22, I don't think I've had a 40-hour work week ever. Uh, it's more like 50, 60 hours a week, and and most editors, who are worth their salt, work that hard. There's no way around it, and that's why everybody complains. They go away in the summer. Yeah, I know what they're doing in the summer. They're reading manuscripts and editing them. <laughs> they may be they may be sitting in their country home somewhere with their feet up, but they're working hard. Now, by the way, in in the book that you're reading, My Kidnapped on Safari, Mm -hmm. and you say you're halfway through, watch out for this because all my books have this in common. You think it's going in one direction, and indeed it is. And Perro thinks it's going in one direction, and indeed it is. But he hasn't seen the other layers. And when the other layers become apparent, everything has to change. And I like that twist where there's hidden factors that the protagonists have no way of knowing ahead of time that when they come into play, but they were always there when they come into play, their whole reaction and their ability to survive becomes far more complicated and difficult.
0: All right. I'll be looking for that twist then.
1: (laughs) There you go. I always try to put a little humor in it too. So there's a general twos at the end, T E W S. um, Who's kind of funny
0: yeah okay Peter well thank you so much for being on the podcast I appreciate your time and uh, talking to us this is a uh, fascinating talking with you
1: Alan it's my pleasure thanks so much I'm looking forward to reading your books
0: oh thank you thanks for listening to the meet the thriller author podcast be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation access the show notes and discover great thrilling reads if you enjoy the podcast I'd love for you to subscribe uh, rate and give a review uh, to it wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now I would appreciate it and uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.